0: Hello and welcome once again to the My Favourite Film podcast with me, your host Gav Smith. In this episode, I will be talking to Graham Williamson about Mulholland Drive. Before I start that conversation, let's just go through the contact details as per usual. If you want to get in touch with me here at the podcast, the best way is via email. It's myfavouritefilmpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at film or Instagram at myfavouritefilmpodcast. There you go, that's easy ways. Um, It would be really good as well if you could leave me a five-star rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or both, why not? It is those five-star ratings and reviews that helps this podcast get found by other people. There you go. Okay, so today's chat is with Graham Williamson, and it is about the Dave Lynch film Mulholland Drive. It is quite a long conversation. It is spoiler-filled. I haven't put my normal breaks within it because they just didn't feel to be a in the conversation where I could stop and do something, so it's just a straight-through conversation. Please enjoy it. A little bit more for me at the end. Here's my conversation with Graham.
1: I can't believe it. I'm just so excited to be here. I'm in this dream place.
2: This one comes highly recommended. Dream place. Hello, Graham. Hi, gaf how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your sort of mm. connection with film, or what you do that type of thing?
1: Sure, sure. I'm a filmmaker and critic from Middlesbrough. I currently run Pop Screen, a podcast from The Geek Show, where every week we review a different film, either starring about or even directed by a pop star. Uh, I also write for The Geek Show, and I write for... As we were saying earlier, horrified.com, the British horror website. Uh, I'm included in their new fiction anthology of folk horror stories as well. Fantastic! Uh,
2: yeah, that's me. Good stuff. Excellent, yeah. I mean, obviously, I've, I've just started sort of joined this sort of geek show group. Indeed. Just writing yeah. in it's a couple of reviews. I've got a, a few to do, actually. Um, so we are going to talk tonight about David Lynch's Mulholland Drive from 2001. We well, are. Yeah. Uh, Big question at the start. Why is this your favorite film?
1: Oh boy, can I take you right back to yeah. <laughs> why David Lynch in general? Fair yes. Yeah. Because you see, when I was a kid, I, I wasn't really into film. Um, right. it, it, I think because the, the mainstream children's stuff of the late 80s and early 90s when I was young was just, just not tuned to my taste. It was very much in that kind of sentimental ambling entertainment kind of stuff, or, you know, maybe it's slightly spikier, but it's still about this sort of bratty Macaulay Culkin type kid. <laughs> there, was, there always seemed to be a character like that in every movie. And it I just didn't connect with it at all. Like the stuff I enjoyed as a kid tended to be stuff like Roll Dahl or the Beano, where there's yeah. this kind of misfit spirit in it. Yeah. And I I just thought film is kind of a, a thing where the stories are sentimental and they're about corn-fed Iowan kids, and I just don't relate to that in any way. I must say, actually, I've, I've gone a bit back on Spielberg over the years, and there were some late Spielberg films like Bridge of Spice that I really yeah. rate, but um different story. So my like visual side was, as I grew up, I got really into painting and the history of painting. And nice. I loved I loved the surrealists. And yeah. <laughs>
0: Can you see, see where, where you're it's going. going? <laughs> you see where it's going.
1: Yeah. And I think the moment they clicked for me is when I saw Blue Velvet. And you know how towards the start of Blue Velvet, there is a scene where Kyle McLaughlin is walking home. Yeah. He's in a field near his house. Yeah. And he finds an ear in the grass. Yeah. And that, for me, was an absolute lightbulb moment because this guy isn't like a film hero I've seen. He's not meant to be like, you know what it was like in the early 90s. He's not radical. He's not extreme. He's he's like this very clean-cut young man in a a suit on a hot summer's day. And he's found this ear, so it's kind of gore, but it's not a horror scene. You know, it's in bright sunlight, and and the mood is one of a kind of fascination rather than repulsion. And I felt so excited. I thought, all all of those levers that I'm sick of seeing being pulled in mainstream films, they're not there anymore. And you have to figure out what, what it means for yourself. Yeah. So that's kind of the groundwork. And by the time I was in my first year at university, I was already a massive David Lynch fan. And I heard that the London Film Festival was doing tie-in screenings up at Newcastle's lovely Tyneside Cinema. Yeah, yeah. And one of the films was Mulholland Drive. Right, now, at this point, I knew it existed because yeah. it had been through this saga in its production that I'm sure yeah. we'll get on to. Yeah. I had heard rumours about it. I had lost all faith I would ever see it <laughs> or it would ever get produced or finished. So I thought, this that's amazing. I'm going to buy the ticket for this. It was, and I think it remains, the best cinema experience I've had in my life. Okay. That suddenly, this very private obsession that I've had because you know you're 16 years old trying to get your friends interested in Eraserhead is (laughs) an uphill struggle in a lot of ways I mean you know but suddenly I am in this packed out cinema um a a cinema that is so packed that even thinking about it in these COVID times is giving me an anxiety (laughs) attack but it was it was rammed yeah Yeah. everyone in it Everyone in it loved David Lynch and they laughed at the funny bits and they jumped at the scary bits. And they, you know, it's the sort of crowd experience you normally have in the first weekend of a Marvel movie. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was happening for this completely abstruse piece of artwork. And I got home And the first thing I did was I sent like a a group email to any of my friends who I thought would be interested saying, I've got a new favourite film.
2: Fantastic. And it was this, obviously. And it was this. Uh,
1: No, it it wasn't this. I actually saw American Pie 2 on the same night. (laughs) uh...
2: (laughs) Far better film. (laughs) No, um, I mean... I must admit, I, I think I said before we start recording, I've seen it twice now. Um, yeah. And I think after the first time I went, I'm never going to go back to it. And the second time I watched it now, I possibly feel very similar. Um, you might be able to change your mind on that, that you might be able to tell me something that makes me go back to it again. Um,
1: you realise that if we get a reviewed copy of this in on the Geek Show, if there's some <laughs> 20th anniversary of the issue,
2: it's going straight <laughs> over to you, right? Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. I'll do that. <laughs> Might be an interesting review, I do. <laughs> Perhaps. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I must bet it's probably because I've got, I've got in. I've watched, I think I've seen most of Dave Lynch's films. Mm. Um, I keep going back to him because I, I do think the guy's a genius. I think he yeah. knows film and how to write a film and direct a film and just do all the visuals better than most people. Um, I think there's an awful lot of hype around him and his films. That he gets an awful lot of love for things that you have to really look at. Um, yeah. And I admit I've I've never understood a single film that he's done. I normally walk away from it going, what, what was that? And I'm sure you've had that from other people as well because I know I've heard it from other yeah. people as well. Um, yeah. But this one is, I don't know, it's it's more so than some of his other films because. There's two films here, isn't there? Yeah. Or oh, there's there's a film and a half. <laughs> well, production-wise,
1: as uh, as a, a hint, it was developed as a pilot for a TV series on right. ABC, yeah. and the script had been rattling around for ages. I think there was originally there was like a very basic early script where it was a, a Twin Peaks spin-off. Yes, And uh, Naomi Watts' character was Audrey Horne, and she was going away to Hollywood to make a name as an actress. And that never happened. And eventually, when it did get produced, ABC, who commissioned it, uh, hacked it really brutally to try and fit in with commercials. And in the end, they just passed on it altogether. And it took about, I think, two years for him to get the rights back and make it into this finished feature film. So... When you say it's two films, I agree, it plays like two films. I think if you don't know that, you will see it, but it it literally is. There's like a a sort of, I would say, about an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes of material that was basically the TV pilot, and then it's stuff that he did a couple of years later with the cast.
2: That then fit in to make something else, I suppose, yeah. 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 I mean... (sighs) There's a lot of it that is, it seems like he's gone, we're going to do a bit where this happens and mm. it doesn't seem to fit into the rest of the story. It's just like, I'm going to do something where I need this guy to t- have this bit of conversation and then we'll never go back to him again. Or just things seem to happen for for no apparent reason. And there's a bit with the, the detectives who find yeah. Rita's car. And yeah. I seem to think that, you only see them the once at you the do. car. yeah. And then yeah. That, that's it. Because so I actually thought when I first was watching, them, they, oh, there's going to be a bit of a, the te- detector's going to be looking for her and they going to try and find her and there's going to be a bit of story there. But then they never reappear. So it was just like these characters that were set up. But I suppose that fits in with what you're saying about it being a pilot for a TV show, that we're going to introduce you to these characters and they'd come out in a further episode later on down the line and not, that's why you only see them a little bit.
1: Oh, yeah, and I think there is, like, there's a danger to talking about this in that it makes it sound like Lynch is just trying to cover <laughs> up his missteps. It's like, <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong, I'm sure the original plan was to have those detectives, one of whom was played by Robert Forster. Yeah, yeah. Who, you know, feather in the cap of any production. Uh, I'm sure the plan was to have them come back week after week and get a bit yeah. closer to solving the mystery. Yeah. The thing is that they're still in the film and they could easily not have been. I mean, Lynch is open about the fact that he hates the fact that that pilot is out there, that it's on the internet, that it's been bootlegged. So it would have been very easy for him just to chop that scene out and act like it had never happened.
3: Yeah,
1: I think the scenes towards the start of Mulholland Drive really teaching you how to watch the film you have the right. the opening scenes with the jitterbug contest yeah a very it's very artificial isn't it yes there's a fakeness to the whole thing yeah so you and then it's followed by that point of view shot of the camera going into a pillow So you know there's there's a kind of dream level to it. This isn't all the real world. You have the detectives who key you into the fact that you should be watching it like a detective. You should be trying to unpick the mystery. You have that extraordinary scene, again, with characters who barely register in the rest of the story, but still that extraordinary scene at the diner with the thing behind the diner. yeah which keys you into the fact that there is there is a darker force at work here. And, yeah. You know, without that scene, the first half hour of the movie is basically yeah. just Naomi Watts being all sort of golly gee, you know, <laughs> we can fix this ourselves. <laughs> Let's put on the show right here, isn't it? Yeah. But that, that one scene, which is so scary, it, so it astonishingly yeah. frightening, yeah. that colours the whole rest of the film.
2: Yeah. And obviously they do come back to that same scene later on. It's mm. sort of a, a rehash of it, I suppose, towards the end in the I'm gonna call what is the second film or the second story or the I don't know. Yes. I, we'll discuss that later on because I've got ideas on it, and I'm sure there's probably theories all over the internet that I purposely didn't look into.
3: Yeah. About what yeah. that
2: second part is. Um mm. but I kind of wanted to have a, a fresh eye on it, see what your your opinions were. I'm sure, sure you've we're. done yeah. reading around it more than I have. Um yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about these two two main characters of sports, um, mm-hmm. which is Betty and Rita. Yeah, um, for a while. For a while, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean Betty's obviously this appears to be a very naive girl who's come to Hollywood to to make a star of herself. Yeah. Whereas Rita appears to be already a starlet. Um. But yeah. something's happened. I mean, go on, tell, tell us how this bit with Betty and Rita occurs and how that happens and how we get to meeting our two leading ladies, I suppose.
1: Well, it kicks off uh, over the opening credits with the scene where Rita, or the law of having character, I guess we yeah. should call her, uh, because she's not really called Rita no, in she, this no. version. She gets that from yeah. the poster, doesn't she? Yeah. 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 She's in an accident. She's in a limousine. Uh the limousine is going over Mulholland Drive, the real life street in Hollywood. She's pulled up, she pulls over and she's threatened by her driver with a gun. And at this moment, there's like a car full of drunk driving teens that is coming in the other direction. They get a lynch constant. There is gorgeous sound design going between this really ominously quiet build up to what we think is going to be an assassination and all this screaming and tire skidding from the kids. Uh, The cars crash. The people trying to kill her appear to be themselves killed. But Haring's character has amnesia. She is has a head injury. She loses her memory, and she finds her way. It's almost like she's following some sort of tribal memory, isn't it? Yeah, like, a, yeah. like a mountain ghost. Yeah, she sees the you city know.
2: over the the cliff top and just kind of walks down through the trees. Endlessly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and
1: she manages to sneak away into someone's house as yeah. they're leaving, and that house is then rented out to Betty, the Naomi Watts character who is shown around by, I think, a lovely young performance. I think it was her last performance by Ann Miller, yeah. uh, who plays Coco, the landlady. And yeah. she was, I mean, Mulholland Drive is a film about Hollywood in a lot of ways, and it's nice to have someone like Ann Miller who was yeah. a veteran in all of those golden yeah. age musicals yeah. in there. Uh, but... Certainly, as you say, Betty seems to be a completely innocent character who's just come over to Los Angeles to chase a dream. And on the first day, she finds this woman in the flat that she's rented who is injured, cannot remember who she is. She calls herself Rita because Diane asks, uh, because Betty asks who she is. (laughs) It's gonna, yeah, this is gonna happen when you talk about Mulholland Drive. But she looks in uh, the mirror and sees, I can't remember, is it Gildor, the lady from Shanghai? Um, I don't remember now either. Yeah, it's a Rita Hayworth it's film. It's a Rita anyway. Hayworth film, yeah. 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 That's the point. That's where she yeah. gets the name from. So that's their, I guess, meet cute. Yes. Among so, the many things Mulholland Drive is, it is a really weird romantic comedy.
2: <laughs> yes, it is, isn't it? Because... The- <laughs> There is a, there's a romance starts between the two of them and it's kind of, it's there from the start and it builds to something a lot more later on, which yeah, I know you're talking about your 16 year old friends when you got into this, I'm sure if you'd shown this scene later on, the old 16 year old friends would have, would have loved to see this film with you. <laughs> it would have been an easier sell than the guy with the
1: weird hair, like mopping the pustules on his mutant baby. I think they would have gone for that.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That that scene's definitely more for the the 16 year old boys out there than anyone else. (laughs) Um, But they're they're very interesting characters. Um, Yeah. Because you're never 100% sure whether Rita is playing Betty in that she's trying to get something from her or whether Hmm. she has honestly lost her mind and can't remember anything at all. I mean, she's sort of portrayed as being an amnesiac, that she's forgotten things, but she does seem to know that there was people coming after her. Um, yeah. So she must remember something of the guy, the guy that got the gun out before the, the car crash actually happened. Mm. Um, what do you think about that relationship? Is, is Rita trying to play Betty as being sort of just keeping her safe, or is them something I else? I mean, if,
1: we, if we're talking about character motivations, I think we have to bring in... The, the massive twist that happens because that does kind of colour it in a different way. And there is like, there is an orthodox interpretation of yeah. Mulholland drive that I, I don't think is wrong. Right. But I, I think just needs a bit of doodling around the edges. You need right. to acknowledge that there are bits of it that are something else, but the, the common interpretation is that the stuff with Betty is The dream of Diane Selway the character that Naomi Watts plays in the second part. Yes. That camera move over the before the credits, that camera move into the pillow is the start of the dream. Yes. Uh, And then there's an obvious point where she wakes up and the identities change. Yes. So when we're talking about Rita as a character, you're really talking about like what does Diane think of Rita? Yeah. And she, so, she sort of splits this person who she knows and who she is in love with into two. Yeah. The part of uh, Camilla Rhodes, Camilla Rhodes yes. is the, the Rita character's name Rita's... in the real yeah. world. Yeah. yeah. Um the part of Camilla that, she is angry at, gets split off into this minor character played by uh, Melissa George, who I think is wonderful, by the way. I mean, she doesn't do much in here, but no. any time <laughs> Melissa George is in a film, I always think, oh, yeah, something's going to work at least. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the Camilla Rhodes character in Diane's dream is like this untalented bubblehead starlet who only yes. gets where she gets because she is literally and figuratively in bed with some very scary, powerful men.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So the Rita character is something else. And I think what what makes this film and Lynch's work in general more interesting than And She Woke Up and It Was All A Dream <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> is that you see the way that these characters live in reality reflected in their dreams. Yes. Diane wants Camilla to be Rita. Diane wants Camilla to be this perfect, naive, blank slate. Yes, yeah. Who she can sort of mould and seduce and in one scene give this wig that even makes her look like Naomi wants. Yes, she does, yeah, yeah. But I think... What, what makes it dramatic, even after you cotton on to this reading, is that Diane's self-hatred bleeds through into the dream. Yeah. There is this part of her that still believes that Camilla can't possibly love her. And that is maybe what you're picking up on, that that yeah. sense that Rita might be playing Betty Is something that Diane is trying to suppress, but can't quite stop. That even her fantasy dream version of Camilla is still untrustworthy.
2: Yeah. That that, that makes sense as a reading. Yeah. I mean, I must remember we we talked about sort of the two different films and how they were they they are very different, but I I'd picked up the same type of thing that that end bit where Naomi Watts' character becomes Diane. Um, mm. was very much the real world and what we'd seen up to that point was a dream yeah. um, which we do see I try to work out whether or not the dream was a sort of drug induced dream that leads to the scene that because we do see Diane in the dream world mm, yeah. as a corpse on the bed that is the room that we then meet Diane in again when she is now in we, we Watts yeah, And I kind of wondered whether or not this dream is happening in her drug-filled, I don't know, filled fantasy that she's then fallen asleep in, and it's she is actually that corpse at the end at some point. I don't know.
1: It's possible, yeah. That it's like a little alarm bell in her head saying, you know, if you don't wake up and sober up, this is, this is you. Or it could just be a projection of Diane's self-hatred. Right,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's difficult to tell because obviously it's, it's never explained. It's because we'll talk about the ending later because the ending I think is very very interesting. Um, and it's... just before we do, have you seen
1: David Lynch's list of ten clues to understand Mulholland Drive? I haven't. Is there a list? Is there? <laughs> there is. Yeah. When it was out at cinemas, um, they realised it was generating like a lot of discussion. And yeah they said, oh, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could put out a list of clues to (laughs) to understand this? And they are all like maddeningly cryptic things like look for who has the blue lamp. And (laughs) I I read this and I thought, wow, I I really thought I understood this film, but these clues have made it clear that I don't have a clue what's going (laughs) on.
2: Maybe I should find that list and then watch the film again with the list. (laughs) it can't make things any worse. <laughs> good point. Good point. I mean, I did, I did notice, because I, I watched the uh, the cut that's on the BFI player, Yeah. Um, which is, I think it runs at like 2 hours 20, but there's a remastered cut that I spotted on Amazon Prime, which is another six oh, minutes. Maybe. But I don't know what that six minutes adds to the film. Yeah, I
1: don't know about that, actually. That's very strange. I was unaware yeah. that that existed.
2: Yeah, well... It, it's it's not on for free streaming. You have to buy it. And then yeah. I had BFI players, so it was going to be, well, I already paid for that, so I may as well watch it for free. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure what that six minutes adds to the film. Um, I don't know if there is um, something special within that six minutes that just changes everything. I don't know. I don't
1: know. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's funny, because even though this is my favourite film, I, I sort of steer clear of a lot of the, like fan debates about what certain elements mean and it's i mean it's not a mode of discussion that i generally go in for but it's something that i particularly feel like like i can't join in within this film because i feel like if i go to some subreddit where every single thing is passed (laughs) and sort of filed and like logged for significance I won't get the experience that I had uh, before I came on this podcast where I watched it again and I felt like it was a different film all over yeah.
2: again. Yeah. yeah. So have you watched it again before coming on at night, then, have you? It takes very little product <laughs> to really watch Mulholland Drive. Do you watch it regularly then? Is it, a? I stick it on because I'm feeling a bit bored today or I'm in this mood for confusion so I'm going to put it on?
1: It's funny, I mean, I don't, Rewatch many movies, mm. loads of times. There, there are so many movies out there that I'd love to see that I don't get bogged down in like rewatching and rewatching stuff. Yeah. I would say, yeah, this is probably one of the films that I've watched more times than any other. I, right. I couldn't put a number on that because there's always a fair stretch yeah in between the times that I watch it. Yes. But yeah, I've yeah. watched it a lot.
2: Right. Okay. Um. So. I'm trying to think where we are because we then we've got our two main characters. Then that they're sort of set up for us. Yeah. Um, we then flick to one of those scenes that seems to have absolutely no. I think actually, sorry, just go to the detectives then, which is the scene that we talked about earlier that has yeah very little relevance to the rest of it. And I guess, as you said, if it was going to be a series, that would have made sense. But then we flick to this um, these two guys in the the office. They so yeah. were talking about making money, and then one of them just randomly shoots the other one for seemingly no reason. Mm. Um, the, I'm going to have to say, what's going on in this scene? What, what's the point in this then? Because again, this seemed like a, a completely pointless scene to me that you could very easily have just gone, we don't need that. Because um, mm. it doesn't add anything to the film other than a bit of humor, because it's quite amusing. What, what do you think about say, it yeah that
1: that before I, I do sort of explain it as part of the architecture there is a part of me a big part of me that wants people to enjoy mulholland drive almost yeah. on a scene by scene basis yes, I think yeah. when you focus too much on the overall structure and meaning of the film you miss yeah. that this is just su- such a beautiful piece of entertainment and the scary scenes are yeah. terrifying and the yeah. funny scenes like this one are hilarious and yeah. you know the the romance is tender the uh, the suspense is you know breathtaking yeah. i think anytime it goes for a mood in a scene it nails it so hard and yes, the fact that this is basically a comic relief scene, yeah. like even if that's all it was, I just think it's so funny. I, oh, I yeah. really think it's hilarious.
2: I, I do. I agree. But because um, the guy with the, the vacuum at the end of the hall who just stands there and looks at him is <laughs> just, well, he's fighting with this woman that he's shot in the side and trying to drag along. It's just. <laughs> well, it, it's a very, I suppose, it's a kind of it's a very Lynchian scene in the Mm. way that everyone in it acts, uh, especially the guy with the vacuum, that he's just hes there, but he's not there, and he's just watching it go. Yes. Which I (laughs) guess Lynch does in a lot of his films, he has someone that's just a staring character that I don't know, they're just there as something that's there, and a and the, the electrical
1: almost. fault at the end—the electrical yeah. fault—is very him, isn't it? There's no such thing as a working light bulb in a David no. Lynch
2: film. No, they all—they all malfunction at some point, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, do you think that is yeah. just a scene that he's put in as just comic relief? Then it's just—I guess we're trying to talk about how a filmmaker made his film because he's—he mm. obviously has a plan and he knows what he's doing. Um, but he does seem to have put together here lots and lots of little films with an overarching story of this love between Betty, Rita, Diane, Camilla, whatever you're going to call them, Um, with little bits just stuck in that he seems to link back to, because I think the the hitman, if I'm right, is the same hitman that appears at the end when Diane is wanting to kill Camilla
1: yeah he is and you know in the um experience of watching it the first time when you're mm. watching this and obviously if you've, you've realized that it won't be strictly realistic some strange <laughs> stuff has happened before this but when you still think it's going to basically follow some sort of three act structure yeah it's like the hitman, I think, makes a lot of sense because you yes. see him do this, you see him slightly later. He is talking with the long-haired guy who he kills at the start of the scene yeah. about a book of contacts related to the hit that was ordered on Rita yeah. at the start of the film. Yeah. So you think, okay, obviously this is going to be significant in unpicking that mystery. And in a way it is in the the mystery... Mm. Of, um, of Rita and Betty's whole existence is tied in with the hit that Diane orders on Camilla yeah. with the same guy at the end of the film. Yeah. So there's this... It, it is quite funny to think about Diane Selwyn like dreaming about this and thinking, that hit man I'm going to order, yeah. I bet he's <laughs> the most incompetent guy you've seen <laughs> in your life. But what, what also matters, apart from this, is this feeling that you are sinking into this very paranoid world. It's like, yeah. Quentin Tarantino was talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, yeah. and he said, part of it is like Joan Didion's L.A. You know, when I wanted to know what L.A. was like in the 60s, I read a lot of Joan Didion, right. and it's it's kind of her version. And yeah. Obviously, this is David Lynch's LA. But if I was going to compare it to a novelist, um, yeah, it's Thomas Pynchon's LA, right? Right, it's this yeah. Big web of interconnected conspiracies yeah. and hidden agendas and mafia plots. Yeah, and part of the fun is you don't know if there's a bottom to get to.
2: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, because. You do, you you do watch it and there's so much going on and there are so many interconnected stories, but yeah, they just seem to keep going down different routes and you never know when mm. one of them is going to connect to another route. And I think the whole way through, as you were saying, you've got these, the hitman appears and you've got the detectives. You, you kind of want all the stories to link up somehow. because. Mm, um, yeah. But I guess, again, that's what Lynch was trying to do was to make you think this was a normal film and that these things will all tie up. But it yeah, structure disappears way, quite quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of the pleasure of being lost to me yeah. as well, I think. It is, you know, this is a completely anachronistic reference point because this movie was released in 2001, but yeah. it is the film equivalent of going on a really hardcore Wikipedia binge <laughs> and just following every <laughs> link in that interests you. And there's never an end point, there isn't a point where you say, Ah, that's resolved the question I initially had because the, yeah. the the mystery, the getting lost in it is the point. One yeah. of the places it comes from in Lynch's career is actually a film that he didn't make, but right. its influence is all over this and Twin Peaks and Lost Highway, that he was hired to adapt a book called Goddess by Anthony Summers, which is right, okay. a biography of uh, Marilyn Monroe. And he said he really enjoyed kind of getting lost in the, the kind of the tragic, you know, icon, this woman who's in serious trouble and getting into all the stuff about the Mafia and the Kennedys. He yeah, said, yeah, yeah. The fact that it was real people and never real facts just made it feel like a dead end. So you can, right. you can view stuff like Twin Peaks or Mulholland Drive as his effort to construct a version of the Marilyn Monroe story. Right, yeah, yeah. Which, which honours what interests to him, that you can go into this mystery about this beautiful blonde woman in serious trouble with all yeah, sorts yeah. of factions, and you never have to say, okay, but the coroner's report said this, or okay, but someone yeah. swore under oath that he was here. It never gets to that point.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense as well, actually. Yeah, there's um, you, you can see that type of thing happening within this, and actually, as you say, in Twin Peaks, the same type of ideas are there behind them, aren't they? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: Um, so let's talk about the other characters because the other major mm. character in this is Adam.
1: I love Adam Kesher. <laughs> He's, He's great. great, isn't he?
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he. Ah, because he is different in both versions of the, hmm. I suppose the reality and the dream. Um, we have the Adam that's trying to find a new leading uh, lady, gets yeah. a new star um, in the dream version, and then we have the the director who's basically just is sleeping with this leading lady in the the real life version. Um, yeah. Which Adam do you prefer, or do you like them both for different reasons?
1: <laughs> oh, the, the Adam in the, the real world is kind of ball, it's true. But <laughs> yeah. it's strange because even even though we're in reality at that point, that version of Adam Kesha feels so mediated through yeah. Diane's gaze. Like, literally at several points, we are shown her looking at him and Camilla, and we are then shown a cutaway to... Uh, him and Camilla sort of making out passionately at this yeah. Hollywood party and you think, well, is that real or is that just kind of ha- the, her jealousy that we're seeing? Yeah. But he's he's a very... Um, we see him through a very partial lens at the end, I think. I would like to think that Adam Kesher is a bit more like the dream version of yeah. Adam Kesha, who is kind of a... He's, he's kind of a sad sack, isn't he? He has... Probably the worst day anyone in Hollywood has ever yeah. had.
2: Yeah, yeah, he gets. Let's think he gets basically his leading lady gets sacked for no good reason that he can find. Yeah, uh, he's told he's gonna be sacked and everyone else is gonna be sacked if he doesn't do what it's Mr. Raw because by, Rourke, the, isn't by it? the mob, no yeah. less. Yeah, yeah, um. And if he doesn't do what they say, then it's just, that's it. His film's finished and he's just got to make this new film. Yeah. Um, which I think is when he then he ends up going off into the desert, doesn't he? For some unknown reason. But I guess it's part of the dream. So maybe that's what she imagines that he did. He went off into the desert to work yeah, out yeah. his problems. Um yeah, he has a really bad day. <laughs> he, he,
1: he has all this happen to him, and then he finds out that his wife's cheating on him with Billy yes. Cyrus. You know what, I, I is, forgot that.
2: Because, uh, yeah, he, go, he goes home, and it that is, that is an incredibly <laughs> surreal section as well, because he just goes <laughs> home, and he kind of calls out for his wife, walks through the door, and she's like, oh, so now you come home. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> you're lying in bed with another man, and you're just saying that to me.
1: Oh, yeah, his, his wife absolutely believes herself to have the moral high ground, and it's very absolutely, funny. Absolutely, yeah.
2: yeah.
1: And I think it's it's one of the things that I love about David Lynch is that even though his films do take place in this skewed alternate reality, <laughs> he, he gets kind of comedy of manners and comedy of discomfort very well. You know, the yeah. story about when he was trying to shop Eraserhead around distributors. Yeah. And he said there was one guy who just got so angry and he just stood up and walked out and shouted, people don't act like this. People don't talk like this. But the incredible thing was, was that he, he, he said this and he walked out during the scene where Henry has that awkward dinner with his girlfriend's parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... I guess that is a surreal scene, but anyone watching it will be able to think of a similar scenario that they've been in their own life.
2: Yeah, I mean, some of the things that happen in that scene are not realistic, but yeah, the way they act, Mm. it's just that uncomfortable, I don't want to be here type situation, isn't it? Yeah.
1: And it's the yeah. same thing with Adam Keshe's wife. It's like, m- maybe that's not literally how it would happen, but we've yeah. all had an argument with someone who's been absolutely adamant that you're in the wrong, even yeah. when, you know, all, all you can see is their terrible behavior. I almost, I kind of wanted it to literally be Billy Ray Cyrus this time. I thought, <laughs> I know it's the pool guy, I know that's who he's playing, but I just wanted Justin Theroux to walk in just as one to go, Billy Ray Cyrus? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that, that would have been more amusing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was odd that he turned up, actually. I was kind of like, really? Is that Billy Ray Cyrus? But there you go. Um I think he,
1: he moved to LA like in I guess he wanted to get into acting. I don't know, but he he came into LA and this was the first thing he did and he moved to LA with his daughter. Uh, So Mulholland Drive is technically responsible for Miley Cyrus's (laughs) acting and pop career. Well, now then (laughs) we've got
2: another problem with David Lynch now. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I mean, it, it is, that's, it goes through the whole thing that you get these weird little I guess vignettes of, of different stories and different things that could become bigger stories but within the scheme of this film aren't gonna become those bigger stories but I guess I say that's coming back to the whole it was a pilot for a spin-off TV series mm. and the, yeah. there's got to be a lot of that that skeleton still in involved in the script I, script I suppose um so I'm trying to think where we're up to there because we've kind of flicked about through this thing and interested in the different characters.
1: We have um, we've done an appropriately non-linear uh, <laughs> recap of Mulholland Drive. It's true, yeah. Well, you,
2: you can't be linear with it because, well, as you said, it's not linear itself, is it? That just it flicks between different stories so much, and actually, I'm not 100 percent sure how much of it is the dream world, how much of it's the real world. Um. I know that bit at the end is probably the real world. But But it doesn't look like it, does it? No, it it doesn't, because you've still got that that weird... uh, I mean, I suppose the scary moment, the bit that gets everyone that jumps, the jump scare, which comes Mm. um, at Winky's Diner, where we have, I think think the builders Dan and Herb on the, the credits... Having the conversation about.
1: Wonderfully nondescript guys, aren't they? Like they could be co workers, they could be lovers, they could be brothers, and it just wouldn't change anything they do.
2: Yeah, you've no idea who they are, why they're there, but they're talking about this dream that one of them's had Mm. that one of them was one place in the diner, another was another bit, and then they went out around the back. So they decide they'll actually do that and they'll act it out to prove that there's. There's nothing scary behind the bins because in his dream, he's seen this really scary face. And obviously, that's exactly what we get this really scary face.
1: <laughs> One of the things that I love about this scene, and there are so many things I love about this scene, yeah. but I love that it's such a great double bluff that it's a whole like five minute scene constructed about people saying essentially something really scary is going to happen at the end of this. Something yeah. really scary is going to happen at the end of this. And then for some reason, when something really scary happens at the end of the
2: scene, you <laughs> hit the roof. It's the last yeah. thing you were expecting. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I did. Because I was thinking, yeah. it was like, right, surely they've they've set us up for this so much and said something scary is behind the bins. It's going to be like, they'll turn around the corner, there'll be nothing there and I'll be absolutely fine. But yeah, yeah. And that, <laughs> that guy just slides into view with them. Um, Looking really, really dirty and grimy and and scary and just appears. But I think it's yeah. a girl. Actually, I think it's a, a female actress that plays the the bum. I'm it's, sure. When I was looking yeah, through, I forget
1: her name. It's almost impossible to tell because she's under yeah. like so much makeup here. But it is in fact the same woman who plays the uh, the nun in the Conjuring movie. Oh right,
2: okay, fair yeah. enough. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but she's so very...
1: there's a another odd link to mainstream cinema in there.
2: Yeah. She's yeah. very she's got very angular features and looks just looks wrong, I suppose. There's a, yeah. a certain alienness to the way she looks, which I guess is probably why they used her as the nun in the conjuring as well, to give that. Absolutely. Same alien look.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it is, it's it's one of those things, like I always say the greatest build-up. Um, in movie history is uh, Ridley Scott's Alien because that spends so much time building up to the alien that you think, "Uh, there's no way that this can possibly be. And then you see it and it's much worse than anything you could imagine. And I think this has a similar thing. That face is so horrific and it's yeah. the makeup is so repulsive. And the, the thing is so evilly calm. And after it scared this guy yeah. apparently to death, it yeah. just glides back behind the wall yeah. to, with, I guess with a
2: strange, guy. S- strange grin on its face as it goes. Yeah. As well, it kind of jumps out and then slides back yeah. with a strange grin. And is it like, what's happened? Yeah. But I mean, he, he tells us that it's the scariest face because he said it's a face I never want to see again. He talks about that. That's what he's seen in his dream. And then we see it and you, you should be expecting it as you say, but it still makes you jump and go up through the ceiling. Completely. Now, yes. I'm sure in the cinema, everyone jumped as well. Did they?
1: <laughs> oh man, that got the biggest reaction. I mean, it's it's one of those jumps where there's like a, a shriek and then There's laughter as people laugh at how completely they fell for that one. Yeah, yeah. I've I've never, like, I've never seen a horror movie, a full-on horror movie, get a reaction as great
2: as that. Yeah, that's that's. I guess that's the the issue here. What genre would you put this film in? Because I've seen it listed as psychological drama, which seems like an odd title for a thing. I think anything.
1: And anything you call it will give you this feeling of, yeah, I guess that's one way of putting <laughs> yeah. it. It's like I I suppose I've seen some people label it as an erotic thriller, which again right. Yeah, I can it's see a, that. Yeah, yeah. Thriller, it's sexy, but it's yeah. not like I, I think Going back to that sort of early 90s phase, I think the early 90s has killed the label erotic thriller. It's like (laughs) anyone who was alive during that time will just get an instinctive shudder at the very idea of an erotic thriller. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know. Everything seems to short sell it. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. If you if you go in wanting a horror film, the horror yeah. scenes are among the scariest ever filmed. True, yeah. If you go in wanting an erotic thriller where it's tense and it's sexy, if you go yeah. in wanting a comedy even, it's a very, very funny film. It's yeah, even, yeah, yeah. It even becomes a musical at several points.
2: Yes, it does. Yeah, there's, a, there's some um, very good singing parts in it, I suppose. There's the whole casting scene for the... I guess, for Adam's film where the, all the blondes come out and they all sing their song. And there's yeah. the um, the odd cabaret act, which is the yes. most dreamlike scene, I think, in the dream version, if that makes sense, where we have the the magician who makes the whole ground shudder and including Betty's character.
1: Yes, um, and but- that's like, in terms of... I guess you would compare it to the scene in The Shining where the ghosts unlock the kitchen door. Yeah. That, that cabaret scene is the point where you realise this thing isn't going to come down to earth. You know, there yeah. isn't going to be a rational
2: explanation yeah. for this. Yeah. Now, it, 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 I suppose it, it goes full Lynch at that point.
3: Yeah, um, absolutely. Because yeah. that's where
2: they, even the way they go into the cabaret, that they just seem to get up in the middle of the night and then you have that whole thing of them; they're in the door of the Cabaret building, and then the camera f- zooms in after them and follows them in. Um, yeah, it's it's very and dreamlike.
1: It's the kind of thing that you either find very seductive or yeah. you don't. You know, it, it to me, it's like an Alice in Wonderland moment, yeah. and. I was really, uh, again, going back to childhood, I was really fond of Alice as a kid and I was really fond of any story yeah, yeah, yeah. where there is a kind of magical door or portal, and there's something on the other side. And I yeah. I think one of the, the most straightforwardly charming things about David Lynch is that he makes those sort of magic door stories for adults.
2: Yes, yeah. I guess that, that's... Particular scene is very much in that whole. You're going down the rabbit hole. Even the way he zooms into the the cabaret yeah. door, it is that whole thing. We're going through another rabbit hole now into this different world.
1: And also because, the kind of symbolism of it that when when the purpose, I guess, of the scene manifests itself when you get the thing that will take you into the next scene, it's that box that just appears. In yeah. Betty's lap after she's had this sort of convulsion. Yeah. And the box contains a key. And he says, well, okay, this isn't like a detective story clue, <laughs> but it, the symbolism it is very obvious. You are unlocking the mystery.
2: Yeah. 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 And that, that cabaret scene, um, it does it. it, it it's like I say, it's very, very dreamlike. And it does Mm. give you that whole thing of this box, because this box is a major factor in the whole story now, or the end of the dream, I guess. Um, I think it's the hitman says that when it's done, the key will appear where I said it would. And it's that same key, because he holds up a blue key at that point. Um, And it's that blue key that she finds in the box at the end of, I guess her dream.
1: So I guess what she's unlocking here is her own waking life. That's yes. essentially the mysteries that are set up in the first two thirds of the of Mulholland Drive. To a great extent, are mysteries that are solved by saying this is the dream of Diane Selwyn. So it, yeah. it is, it is kind of playing fair at this point. It is saying you know. Yeah. The, the, this is the solution, guys. The key is unlocking the solution.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, that, I suppose that whole that whole scene is so surreal in the way it plays out. The whole cabaret part of it. Um The own... singer
1: Rebecca Del Rio is is just incredible, oh, and that really. Yeah. I mean, I know she's miming in the movie, and that's yes. the whole point of the performance. But that is her voice.
2: Yeah, how oh, is it?
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean that, it is. It's it's a great rendition of the song, and absolutely bizarre that she then seems to keel over and die whilst the song's still playing. But I guess that's because she's supposed to be miming it in the in the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, does that then lead into us opening the box? Is that the point we get home from then, and then she opens the box?
1: I think. Um, I, can,
2: to I can't remember myself. Well,
1: the chronology of it becomes very difficult for me as we get to the end <laughs> of uh, the dream. But at some point, they do find Diane Selwyn's body around yes. now.
2: Yeah. Which is another kind of um, a perfect horror moment, I suppose. It's got mm. all the horror beats you'd expect that they're breaking into this seemingly dilapidated house. Um, They've been told by it and... I think I think, they go round to Diane's house and Diane isn't there. It's a neighbour yeah. who says she swapped apartments with Diane. Diane now lives down the road. Mm. So they go down the road to this other house, which I believe is the same building that we then first meet Diane Anne, and when we come out of the dream.
1: It seems to be, yes. yeah, Yeah,
2: because it's the same neighbour then that she's she seems to be swapping house at that point. Yeah. Which is, I guess, is, is why when I said earlier that I I wonder if the dream is after the end of the film. So this bit is kind of happening before the start of the film. So if we take the end of the film where she kind of collapses onto the bed having been chased mm-hmm. by her, uh, by her, Irene, uh, I think it's her mum or whatever. Um, yes,
1: yeah, I think there's a level that there's a there's a level where that makes a lot of sense. That this yeah. is her fantasy about how she could come back and start all over again, and things yeah. would be better.
2: Yeah, yeah. But th- again, let's like said, sorry. Going back to it, this this plays on those horror beats that you you go into the room with them. Everything's all the tension's there for you again that something's going to happen here you're gonna see some of the music amps up in the right way that you know there's something horrific at the end of it but again you don't believe them and I I know I jumped when you suddenly see Diane's body um looking the way it does um and I couldn't work out whether it was actually Naomi Watts that was playing Diane in that as that dead body but it's it's quite... I
1: would. I. I'd never considered that before. I would love to think that was the case because it would mean that the twist was literally in plain sight.
2: Yeah, it was just the the face is quite distorted because it's it's decomposed. Um, yeah. But and there's lots of blood obviously around the face, so you can't tell. But it it, it looks like the right body shape, the right color hair, and everything, and it's definitely a possible that it is her. Um. How did that one play in the cinema? Did that get the same type of jump as the, the guy behind the bins? I don't know. I think I was very absorbed in my <laughs> own reaction by
1: that point. I think that, um, yeah, it's it's funny. I'd never thought about that before, but I remember the reactions to the guy behind the restaurant and the yeah. incompetent hitman as clear as if it was yesterday. But by that point, I was like laser-focused on trying to work out what I thought of this thing.
2: yeah. So I think when they run out of the house, because obviously they scream and they run out of the house, there's a, a weird thing with the camera where you get a doubling of the two characters. Yes. Which, again, I saw some sort of clue towards the fact that this was a dream life, that they weren't their real people, that there was there was two versions of each of them. And he almost directs you to that at that point because you see this two versions of them coming out of the house. What do you think about yeah,
1: and. I think that were, Lynch is very, very good at working out those little sort of little basic visual tricks that, nevertheless, yeah. heighten the dreamlike moves. You, you can file that alongside the kind of overexposed shots in yeah. Lost Highway yeah. of. In the diner scene, it's got that fabulous sort of loop de loop camera movement that just keeps going throughout the scene, and it it does give you this authentically kind of woozy feeling as if you're about to nod off yourself.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I must admit that when you the point of view shot that you walk out to the bins where it's kind of it is moving around is a a really odd,
1: yeah, um, an odd experience. I mean, ever seen that in a film before?
2: No, I mean I've seen plenty of point of view shots, but they tend to be fairly straight walking around. But that's as if someone is doing sort of rolling their head.
1: Just yeah,
2: when you just do an audio rolling your head, but <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's a fair point.
2: <laughs> but um, yeah, there's there's lots of odd moments like that um, where he he puts you in a very I don't know, insecure frame of mind that you're not 100% sure what's going to happen next. And I guess that's what he does through all his films, that you're never 100% sure what's going to happen next and where it's going to go. Um, I'm just
1: trying and to think now... And it's the sort of thing where like, either you find that really exciting and you think, yeah. oh, I can't wait to see where it goes next, or you feel like you're being led up the garden path to nowhere. And I, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious which camp I fall into, but yeah. I do, I, I should point out that I do have sympathy for people who like get about 20 minutes into Inland Empire even to think what the hell is this you know I I get that
2: Hmm. Hmm. Um, as I said I I think I've I keep going back to David Lynch I've never gone I really hated that or just I can't watch that again or I'm never going to watch anything by him again I keep going back to his films to see what it is he does because yeah. I think he's a very, very interesting writer and director. And I, I, I can see so much why people love him, but I just mm. can't bring myself to love him myself, I suppose. But there's an awful lot in all his films that are just like, that's amazing. Where does an idea like that come from? Look what he's done with the camera here. Look how he's used the camera there. And there's so much you could, if you were making a film, you could see from how he's, used cameras and used colours and things that you so much you could learn from um, what I
1: cherish in a lot of the directors I love is when you find someone who on the one hand is an avant-garde filmmaker but on on the other hand is a real feeling director you know when I look for directors as I often do who yeah. to go back to the start of the film who aren't pulling those levers and who aren't pushing those buttons yeah Like sometimes it's great, sometimes you find a new favorite, but sometimes you end up just watching stuff that is very dry and very theoretical and doesn't seem interested in letting you in. Whereas, even I think people who dislike Lynch would have to admit that he is very good at setting a mood that really seduces you, that really draws you in and is really sensual and intoxicating.
2: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we'll go back to the the 16-year-old version of you trying to get the the other (laughs) boys to watch the film. That scene absolutely draws you in. There is a a heat that almost comes off the the film at that point that you can feel that this... Lust that's going on between the between the two leading ladies as they, they get into bed with each other.
1: There um, is, and there's all there's also a great joke there when Betty asks the amnesiac Rita, "Have you ever done this before?" And the reply is, "I yeah. don't know," which yeah. is great.
2: <laughs> this bizarre thing that's someone who, who's lost their memory completely. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, but I mean that that. Even that scene, because um, that then leads directly to the, the cabaret scene, because they wake yeah, up in, in yeah. bed together, and that, that then leads us pretty much, I think, to the end of the, the dream sequence. Um, mm. And I must admit, I've written down in my notes that it's Betty that you see open the box, but there's something jarring my med- memory that's not Betty that opens the box, That is actually Rita, and I can't think now who opens the box.
1: I think it is Betty, but you're right. It is uh, like like I say, as you get to the end of the dream, the the details of it become harder to pick out, which yeah. is, I guess, intentional. In the in at the start of the dream, there is a lot. There are a lot of scenes where things are thrashed out at great yes. length, and that if Rita remembers a name. Yes. You know, Betty will try and find out what yeah. place they associate it with and they yeah. will go to that place and they will ask if there is a person there. And it, it seems to be progressing in this kind of Hardy Boys mystery <laughs> kind yeah. of vein for a bit. But as you say, you know, the cabaret scene happens because Rita just says silencio. Yes, and then she wakes suddenly... up, she's um, yeah. sleep
2: talking, isn't she? Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and then they find themselves at this club called Silencio. And then they find the key because it just appears. And, yeah. you know, even though you have absolutely no idea where it's going, because I, I don't think anyone could guess no. this twist. No. But there is a sense that the narrative is breaking down a bit, that the, the first half of the film, while it includes some very strange and dreamlike stuff, mm. has played basically fair it's shown you how it gets from a to b to c yeah. to d yeah and that's as you get to the end of that the dream suddenly that's all going out the window
2: yeah, yeah. It, it, it is that it's from that moment where they go to the well she wakes up saying silencio that that's where it all breaks down and we lose any form of narrative i suppose that the film had at that point because there's no reason for them being that club and you know um,
1: this—this again—is something that you feel. It's not like I didn't get back home from Mulholland Drive and think, oh, I don't feel like they explained why they go to the club. And I'd mm. you know, so I sit down and I think, oh well, it's because of this, this, and this. It's like no, you, you feel yourself being carried through. It's a sensory, yeah. emotional thing rather than a theoretical
2: thing. Yeah, and uh, again, where the camera moves, as we said, you know, it follows them into the club. You are he purposely draws you into the club because it's Mm. where he wants you to go. So he takes you in and he takes you and the camera together into that club. It's not like they go, we're outside, we're inside. You follow them in and you're dragged in with them, I suppose. Yeah. 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 So we then, she opens the box and I can't remember, as I say, which one it is. I like to say, I seem to think it's better, but I don't actually know if you see the face. I think it's just, The hands, I think maybe I've assumed it was Betty opening
1: it. It is muddied by the fact that this is one of the scenes where Laura Haring is wearing the blonde wig that makes her look very much like Naomi Watts.
2: Could be it, yeah. But we open the box and we go into the box, which is just Mm. a black box, which then cuts the whole... The whole screen goes black. And we then are back in the same room as the box was in, um, and I think it's it's Betty's aunt, who is the owner of the house that um, Betty's been staying in, yes. um, that appears, so it's the same woman that we saw getting in the car at the very start when we was looking for somewhere to, to live, um, appears very briefly, to look around the room and there's, there's no one there. And mm. it's like that room or that house or that apartment's never been used by anyone. So we mm. then go to... Um, Naomi Watts's new character of Diane, that we don't realise is Diane at this point, which just then gets very confusing because she's in this house we've already seen the dead body of Diane in with the neighbour that we've talked to. And it, it is, I, I think at that point, I did have to take the recording back about ten minutes to just watch it again because <coughs> I honestly thought, have I missed something massive here? Did I fall asleep and miss something huge? Yeah. We've just gone to somewhere completely different. And it was like, I'm in a different film now. And I honestly thought I'd missed something, but I hadn't. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that, did Lynch put this in, in this way to, to purposely try and, I, I don't know, make people think or confuse? Or is it just, is this something that he filmed later to put on the end of his pilot? It,
1: I think the I haven't seen the pilot. Um, I did notice it. It is currently up on YouTube, and maybe I'll watch it. But yeah. I also think this is one of those things where you have to remember this wasn't the HBO or the Showtime pilot. This was produced for ABC, a very yeah. mainstream network whose parent yeah. company uh, I think still is Disney. So yeah. you can probably hazard a guess as to where the the broadcastable material ends right (laughs) you could
2: probably have a pretty good (laughs) guess at that yes yes there's a certain scene that definitely is not (laughs) yes disney friendly at all but there's a couple of scenes because we we have a very um a very odd masturbation scene in this in this next sort of real life situation where now we watch the character it's, it has another
1: one of those like little oh, yeah. camera tricks that I just find so mesmerizing yeah. where it's focusing on the flagstones on the yes. hearth and it keeps going out of focus in yes. this really jerky aggressive way. And it's like I do yo, know, I've never seen anyone do that in a film no. before. But as soon as as soon as you watch it, you think, Oh, yeah, that's probably what that emotion feels like, isn't it? Yeah,
2: yeah. it, it is very much like um. He's constantly trying to put you in the viewpoint of, I guess it's always, it seems to always be from Betty's point of view. A lot of those mm. things are from, in this case, Diane's point of view. Um, yeah. Or I guess when we go out at the bins, it's, it's Dan's point of view. So it's always people that are feeling heightened emotions that you get their point of view shots. And they are very heightened. And yeah, I see what you mean. that mm. it, it's, it's that emotion. That's probably how it would look. You're right. Yeah.
1: Yeah yeah so that kind of takes you through to the party scene doesn't it that's yes. where that becomes in. you see like, like again as i was saying earlier i don't want to call them the real versions because it is <laughs> it, it even here you were aware that what you were seeing is very very mediated by yeah. diane's jealousy and yeah. heartbreak yes. and bitterness over camilla
2: yeah because we re-meet Coco again, who mm. is now Adam's mother. Yes. Which I don't know whether she was in the dream version. She was just looking after the house in the dream version.
1: I no, I think there's, there's no hint that yeah. Coco and Adam know each other at all yeah. in the dream.
2: Yeah, yeah, but she's very much the same. She appears to be the same character, even yeah. though she is Adam's mother, and obviously doesn't know Diane at all, which... She did know Betty, so I don't know. Again, is that just something that's seeped into her dream? That's why Coco's there in a dream. That
1: it's something that I often find in my dreams that I will like dream about things and people that I know, but in this weird jumbled way. And in the dream, you just accept it. You accept every wrong connection.
2: Yeah, Yeah. but I mean, even in the. I guess we're calling it the real world. There's still some dreamlike things that go on. I mean, the cowboy that yeah, appears. Yeah, and he just glides past in the background. He's not part of the party. He just seems yeah. to walk in from one side and walk straight back out. And I think Diane kind of catches him out of the corner of his eye, watches him, but there's, there's no talk of him at all. It's just, I guess, hmm. I'm coining it again, it's one of those Lynchian things where he does like to bring things like that in and for no good reason just show something that you think well, what, why has that happened yeah, yeah yeah but there's still a dreamlike state to the the real world
1: in many uh, ways i think the the real world stuff is shot less naturalistically than yeah. the dream stuff i mean diane's eventual death scene right at the end of the picture like is. <laughs> is absolute John Cocteau stuff. It bears oh. no resemblance to anything that could happen in reality. No. And I don't know whether that's simply because Lynch was trying to make this into a, a pilot for a TV show and, yeah. you know, the earlier stuff sees him on good behaviour, I guess. But yeah. I think there's there's also a part of it where Lynch does just find the real world a very strange place.
2: Yeah. I mean, it could be some sort of, I don't know criticism or um talk about Hollywood and that he finds Hollywood at a a very unreal yeah. place, and that's his take on it
1: I think that's part of it, and also that thing you know we were talking about where he wants to literalize an emotion yeah and if you're inhabiting the emotion of someone who is about to kill themselves yeah you, you can't really do that in a way that isn't kind of operatic, I guess.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Cause you, you are showing this person's the end of their life, I guess, because we go mm. from because that takes us to the diner again. Um yeah. and the scene in the diner, which is Winky's diner, which I think is quite nice, um, is set up very, very similar to the scene we have earlier with Dan and Herb. Um, yeah, they're sitting at the same booth. I think it's the same waitress, although her name page now says Betty. Which yeah, again because it was
1: Diane earlier, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
2: So the swapped the names round, which I guess is all the, the dream, not dream that
1: hmm.
2: yeah, not sure. Um, but she then goes out to those same bins that Dan went to. And we yeah. do get that same point of view shot where it's a bit woozy as you go around the bins, but this time the, the face doesn't just sneak out at us. He's, he's sitting there on yes, a, yeah. a stool of some sort with the box in his hand. So the mm-hmm. same box as we, we open earlier on to get into the dream, um, or out of the dream. See which way it goes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it could be either. <laughs> but this, there's then the two little people come out of that yeah. box, and those two little people are the same People that we see with Betty at the very start—it's mm. the lady who sets her off at the airport, and then the the man that's sitting next to that same lady in the, the taxi cab as they drive away—who um, I don't know for some reason are very very small and tiny and crawl out of there. And yeah, this, this bit <laughs> yes. is—I say—it's completely surreal. The whole yeah. end sequence was just one that made me just look at and just. What's going on? Tell me what's going on. Is, is there any coherence well, to it?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that. I think the the old people. A lot of people think it's Diane's parents and that mm. at her moment of maximum guilt, where she feels so bad that she yeah. she can't go on living because of what she's done. Yeah. Um, obviously that's an image that haunts uh, thinking about her own parents so that's readable in emotional terms but the thing behind the diner and why it comes back here I think goes back to one of the things where when I was getting into Lynch when I was a teenager Lynch was a a very unfashionable director at that point it was after Twin Peaks had been cancelled yeah and he was sort of moving around, going around various projects a lot, of yeah. which didn't get made. Um, yeah. But one of the things that people found bothersome about him during the 90s, I think, is that his films are the films of someone who literally believes in good and evil. And I, I think in the cynical kind of poor Moore 90s, people found that a bit hard to cotton onto. People wanted... That to be ironic, and they were a bit yeah. confounded when it turned out that he wasn't, so when he thinks about things like suicide in here or you know the the murder of a young girl in Twin Peaks, yeah, he's really thinking about it in terms of a kind of a, a kind of non denominational demonology right that yeah. he wants to show you the forces that make these things happen as though they were tangible things. And this is where you get, you know, Bob and Judy in Twin Peaks. This is where yeah. you get the mystery man in Lost Highway. Yeah. It's where you get that... Um <laughs> I think in my experience, people who've seen this film know exactly what I'm saying when I say this. It's where you get the thing with the face in Inland Empire. Yeah. Which yeah. is just uh, one scene never forgotten. But... yes.
2: Yeah, as with a you lot know, of scenes in, in Lynch films, there's, there's always something in there that you just go, I'll always remember that bit. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's like the, the baby in a razor head. You, you'll always remember what that looked like. Completely. Yeah. 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 The, yeah.
1: And the more you look at it, the, you, you, know, you think with a special effect that the more you look at it, the more sense it's going to make and you can pick it apart and see the seams, but it never does, no. really. Yep. yeah that, that baby never stops looking very strange
2: <laughs> it's always just an, an odd thing yeah yeah, yeah. so when we're now getting to this 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 surreal end as I said um mm. so Diane's parents we think they may be I think I like the,
1: the idea they it's their parents yeah. I don't know if that's quite the sort of universal viewpoint but it's, it's who they are in my
2: head well I know on, on the credits they're Credit as Irene, and Irene's mm. companion, which doesn't add anything doesn't to it at all. No, <laughs> <laughs> <But, laughs> I don't know. You'd think that, say, Diane slash Betty's parents, but I guess it it depends on who she is and where it's all coming from. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it ends with them growing from these tiny versions of themselves to mm. full size versions, and basically chasing her through the the apartment till she collapses on the bed in what appears to be a smoke-filled room it, um, it
1: looks like glastonbury grove in twin peaks doesn't it it's yes. uh, uh, it's a case of lynch reusing his old sets there i <laughs> yeah, think
2: could be actually yeah yeah and then then that's that's it it then just fades to black and it's it's done with yeah um so how did you feel when this this film finished and that that's it because there's no i mean there is no wrap up there's no conclusion there's no um that's what it was all about yeah what, what goes through your head at that point then
1: i mean the first time i was absolutely stunned and i was shattered you know <laughs> emotionally i yeah. i just could not process what i'd seen, but I was so excited. Like I said, I I immediately told all my friends that it was my new favorite film. And I wanted to talk about it with everyone, and I couldn't, because, of course, it was a London Film Festival preview screening. It came out, I think I I saw it like back end of 2011, probably around this time of year, and it came out in something like April or March 2002 in Britain. So it was a long wait before I could talk this over with anyone.
2: Yeah. I mean, I must admit, it's it's one of the few films that, when I've watched it, I, I found myself watching all of the credits. Yeah, because yeah. After it finished, I was so, I suppose, just stunned that that was it, it was finished, that I had to sit for a while before contemplating getting up from the sofa and doing anything else. So I did just watch the credits.
1: You, see, you th- saw the bit right at the end where Samuel L. Jackson welcomes them all into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, <laughs>
2: right? I was like, there wasn't a bit of <laughs> <laughs> That would have been great, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. If only. <laughs> no, but I did, I did end up watching watch all the credits because so I was absolutely stunned. And I did then switch it off. And obviously before Samuel L. Jackson came on, I'll have to watch that bit again now and see if I can see that bit. It sounds really good. Um, but I kind of walked away thinking, I, I like clever films. And I think mm. this is a very clever film. But it does something that other clever films don't do, which is it doesn't give you anything that you can then hold on and say, right, I now understand what happened. Yeah. And even on a rewatch, I still don't think you get that. I, I would find it very, very difficult to summarise this film to someone and say, it's about this. How do you feel about that? Is that something you think you could do? or? <laughs>
1: The first, uh, I, I remember the first time uh, our mutual friend, Rob Simpson, watched this. It was for yeah. an episode of our old podcast, Cinema Eclectica, where we challenged each other to watch films that we'd never <laughs> watched before. And he, he, when it got round to him, he sort of sat there for a second and said, I don't know where to start. And I said, I said, on, just start with the simple bit. Just do as a quick synopsis. <laughs>
2: I mean, really What did he actually say then?
1: <laughs> I, I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but I think he actually did a pretty good job of it. Because, I you know, I guess if you were talking about in pure plot terms, you yeah. can say, you know, Betty is an aspiring actress who moves to Los Angeles. Yeah. She finds an amnesiac woman going by the name Rita yeah. in her uh, in the apartment she's rented. Rita has survived an attempted contract killing, but she cannot remember anything about her old life. Uh, and they're hitman the hitmen on their trail. So they go and investigate who she is and who wants her dead. And, you know, that makes yeah. it sound like a fairly straightforward thriller, but that is what happens.
2: Yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah. And that, as you say, that makes it sound like a very straightforward thriller and probably would get people, yeah, oh, well, that could, yeah. Chance. Yeah. watch um, So based on that then, if that is the synopsis, how do you think it holds up against its own synopsis? Would people... Do you think most people go away from, if they'd heard a synopsis like that, would go away going, well, that's not what I got? Or... Oh, definitely.
1: Yeah. Which is why I, I think at the time a lot of the the descriptions of it were in the vein that you were talking about earlier, where they said, oh, it's a psychological thriller, it's a mystery yeah. set in Los Angeles. It's very yeah. very broad things, but just to give you a sense that there is some intrigue here. Yeah. What it is when you've watched it, when you've seen it all, is ultimately a tragedy. It's the tragedy of Diane Selwyn. It even yeah. ends with the whisper of Silencio reminding you of the end of Hamlet and the yeah, rest yeah. is silence.
2: yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that bit actually, but yeah. So, how do you think it it holds up then? I mean, it's nearly twenty years old now. I would think it holds up. It's with twenty a film? years old, exactly.
1: Yeah, 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 it's remarkable. And like I say, when when I saw this, Lynch was not a fashionable guy. He'd done mm. the straight story a couple of years before, and that got good reviews, yes. quite rightly too. I think it's an excellent film. yeah, um, yeah. but. People weren't ready to like properly embrace him, and a lot of the articles I read about it when it first came out were saying, even the positive ones were hedging their bets. <laughs> saying this is great, but I don't know how it's going to play with everyone. Yeah. And over the last twenty years, I think his his stature has only grown. Yeah, the, the long hiatus he took from filmmaking after Inland Empire somehow only made people more eager to like yeah. buy huge box sets of his work and yeah. you know post memes about Twin Peaks on the yeah. internet and yeah, yeah. did all of these very fanish things that now seem to be kind of a lingua franca in certain parts of film Twitter. Yeah. And then Twin Peaks the Return comes out and it's a film. It's a it's a show so great that no one can work out if it's a film or not. And yeah. um, <laughs> And then he, he spends like the pandemic in in his shed drawing daily lottery numbers, and everyone just finds it mesmerizing. So, yeah. Yeah. I think s- someone coming to Mulholland Drive now would be in a very similar position to that audience I originally saw it with. Someone right. coming to Mulholland Drive now would see it in a very fan-ish yeah. frame of mind, and yeah. would be. Eager to really gobble up all of Lynch's eccentricities rather than be, <laughs> be repelled by them as people were for much of the 90s. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. How do you think of holds against his other films then? Against other Lynch films? I still think it's the,
1: the best thing he's done. It feels like the right. most complete thing he's done. Um, yes. I think part of what you appreciate with Lynch is the the great collaborators that he has behind the scenes you know Peter Deming his cinematographer Angelo Badalamenti of course is extraordinary soundtrack composer uh, Jack Fisk who somehow the the guy who somehow makes all of these fantastic dream locations into physical sets and you know they're all working on full strength eh? here you know you you can't say anything bad about that and so, that, there is a part of me that just thinks this is the complete David Lynch film. You know, yeah. it's there are films he's made that are funnier than this. There are films he's made that are scarier than this. There are films yeah, yeah. That he's made that are more tense than this. But there is maybe no the Lynch work, even Twin Peaks, even all of Twin Peaks. Yeah. There is no the work that brings it all together like this yeah. does.
2: Yeah, I must admit, watching it, I did think it's it's got. All of the things you expect from David Lynch are in this film, mm. whereas they're not always in all of the other things that he does. The only thing it hasn't got is anyone talking forwards, backwards, or backwards. <laughs> forwards, <how laughs> you want to look at it that they yeah. did in Twin Peaks, yeah. but um, other than that, it's got pretty much everything um, that you would expect from David Lynch. Yeah,
1: I think fa- fans of his version of June might struggle with it. There isn't much that connects with Dune no. other than that. Other than that.
2: I think his version of June's best <laughs> not mentioned. Don't
1: know.
2: He, he got... went
1: through. He went through a phase where, if you talk to him about June in an interview, he walked
2: out. Yeah, and, i I'd um, heard that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I sympathise. Yes.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's got some redeeming points, but uh, yeah. Are, are we... I suppose
1: maybe we should talk about June as being like the antithesis of Mulholland Drive in a way because, again, all of Lynch's collaborators in June, yeah. all of the behind-the-scenes people, are working wonders. It is oh, a yeah. gorgeous, gorgeous-looking film. Absolutely, it's, absolutely. It's just that he couldn't do what he does in no. that in that format.
2: No, he well, was stuck to a, a a very rigid story that had a, a massive fan base, so you can't just go and do what you want to do with it. So it's, And that's not the way he works. He writes and directs his own stuff and it goes... It's also kind
1: of a fool's errand, isn't it? I mean, we're recording this before the Denis Villeneuve one comes out in the UK, but one thing we we have been told about it is they'd adapt the first half of Frank Herbert's novel and you think, yeah, fair enough, that's how you do it. Lynch was trying to adapt the whole novel at a time when long films were out of fashion. Absolutely. He was yeah. trying to get the whole of that book into two and a quarter yeah. hours, which I, I'm yeah. sorry, but you can be the most technically gifted storyteller and adapter in the world and that won't yeah. work.
2: No, no, it wouldn't. No. And I think Denny Villeneuve's from what I've heard, um, he's done a very good job of it. And it's it's a decent film. I was talking to someone who who has been seen it, he's been see it. Um a preview version of it and yeah. he couldn't say much about it because they're not allowed to but he said that it was very good which was pretty much all he'd said so
1: I hope it works I mean Villeneuve every now and then Villeneuve just makes something that I absolutely hate but yeah. I always want to give him a chance because yeah, I yeah. think he's a smart and technically gifted guy and yeah. You know, it's nice that there is still someone in mainstream Hollywood willing to tilt at the moon and say, hey, you know this big, fat science fiction (laughs) novel that you've already (laughs) disastrously failed to adapt three times? I reckon I could make a out of that. that." Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, from what I've seen of the trailers, it it looks amazing. So hopefully it it lives up to that. Um, Back to this. The big question that I've been... Oh no, I've not did the big question yet. Is oh. there anything we've... Is there anything we've missed? Is there any scenes that sort of stand out that you'd you'd really like to talk about that we haven't mentioned? Or
1: I think the the one thing that I I just want to get in is that extraordinary bit where uh, Anne Miller is talking about the boxing kangaroo that <laughs> used to uh, be kept as a pet in in the house by some of the tenants and. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's such a great bit of dialogue, but that—that <laughs> that was also one of the things that ABC were going back and forth with him in it, because there's that shot of a dog turd in it, and there were yes. like memos sent backwards and forwards about how much of the screen that could take up. So <laughs> yeah. you know, this is, you, you see why this is not really an environment that someone yeah. like Lynch can thrive in.
2: No, no. I mean, he—he he, he likes to—he likes to shock. Um, I think a lot of the scenes that he puts into films are purposely put there just to make you go, "Was was that really there?" But yeah,
1: I think even some pretty gross stuff in June isn't there. For all that's yeah. by far the most mainstream thing he's done, there's yeah, some yeah, proper yeah. eraser head style repulsiveness. Yeah, very the, briefly in it.
2: Yeah, there is this the, the the big. I can't remember the guy's name now. I'm trying to think.
1: The, the big guy, like and, that's that's yeah. the one.
2: That's the guy. I mean, it, it, just the way he looks, his whole design. And I know in the book he is described in that way, but the design of him is is. Amazingly grotesque, I suppose.
1: And that that's one of the few bits in June that feels lynchian because it does go back to that thing I was saying about that he believes evil is is physical. Yeah. And yeah. Baron Harkonnen is very much in the tradition of, you know, Bob from Twin Peaks or yeah. Frank Booth from Blue Velvet. He's yeah. a he's a purely evil guy. There's almost yeah. no characterization to him.
2: Yeah. Yeah, very true, yes. And I, I guess he does he fits in with that mould of of Lynch villains in that way, yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Is there anything we've missed? I'm trying to think.
1: I think one of one slightly interesting shift that happened to Lynch after this is that before this he had tended to tell stories through a male lens, usually yes. a male lens that is shaped like Kyle MacLachlan yeah, very often, um, yes. Yeah. And and this, his, I guess you'd call them his Los Angeles films, the point where he sort of moved on from making films, Midwestern films like you know, Blue Velvet or sort yeah. of, not, obviously Twin Peaks is in the the North, uh, the Northwest, but yeah. it's still kind of a rural place. And his LA films are always about women, um, even down to some of the shorts like Lady Blue Shanghai that he was making around this time. And I I find it interesting how absolutely archetypal a Lynch protagonist Betty is, even yeah. though this is the the first time that a woman has had sole lead in his movies. You know, there's right. been uh you could say a Dern is a core lead in Wild at Heart, but still yes. only a core lead. Yes. Um so it it's interesting that. He uh, he has just casually made this character who could be Agent Cooper's sister. If she absolutely yeah, has that. Couldn't she, could country, yeah, yeah. And I yeah. find it fascinating how, you know, whatever whatever a director's gender or sexuality is, the most interesting directors to me are the people who can just sort of hop back and forth between their viewpoint characters. Yeah. Whether that's, you know, Kelly Reichardt making a movie about male friendship. Or whether yeah. that's David Lynch making a sort of glamorous femme version of Dale <laughs> Cooper. You know, it's yeah. it, it's really exciting to me to see those kind of yeah, yeah commonalities between different characters.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm just kind of trying to think that through and just process that. But yes, yes, there's a lot of that in there, and I think you're right that she could be she could be Kyle MacLachlan's sister, sort of thing. Absolutely, in this. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of it in there. Yeah and I suppose especially as he he doesn't just direct these things he writes these things as well.
1: Yeah.
3: So
2: he's not it's not just looking at it through a director's lens through somebody else's eyes he's he's writing that as well and writing the whole story. I mean he's he's the only credit for writing on this. He's no one else. Yes yeah. Credit.
1: I think my recollection is that there was an announcement um there was an announcement when the TV pilot was being planned that he was going to co-write some of it right. with I f- I forget the writer's name but it was a woman who just won an Emmy for The Last Don, the miniseries based on the right. Mario Puzo novel, and I don't know whether this was it was the case that um, that she was going to come on board if it was picked up for series. Ah, right, okay. Or possibly it was just a wrong report and it never happened but yeah it's like when you compare this to the collaborations he's made with Mark Frost on Twin Peaks or Barry Gifford with Lost Highway and Wild at Heart I mean those are still very lynchy films but um, this couldn't be anyone else
2: (laughs) Not at all (laughs) It's the most lynchable lynches done. Completely yes. So big question then can yeah. you sell this film to me in about 30 seconds
1: i think it's a classic romance with all of the glamour of vintage tinsel town as well as uh, several extremely accomplished musical numbers but it's also done with a, a modern focus on representation it's got really positive lgbt role models in it um and you know maybe even a scare along the way so if that sounds like your uh, your cup of tea I can't picture you having a bad time with this film. Watch it.
2: Excellent. Thank you.
1: I think, I think you could only send people up the garden path with this, <laughs> I think. Like, say, any summary you make will be completely inept.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read synopsis of this in different places. You know, you see it on streaming sites and whatever else when you're, you're searching for it, and each synopsis has been very, very different. Yeah. Um, and it falls <laughs> under so many different genres as well if you look for it, and I think it's, I think it's on the list somewhere of fifty greatest horror films, and it it has got I mean, a horrific I monster. It. Yeah, it's, I, it's I... not it's not a horror film traditionally, but it, yeah, I can get mm. it. it. I can see how it fits there, so it's it's a bit of an odd one from that point of view, but yeah,
1: completely. Yeah, I don't think there is like, maybe you raise ahead more of a horror film. Yes. So I, other than that, I don't think there are any Lynch films that would feel comfortable saying, you know, it's a particular genre.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that Eraserhead definitely falls into that oh, horror film, but it, it's again, it, it's a, it's like a dream world that, that he's living in there. Yeah, um, there's yeah. so much stuff in that that is is dream related, but that that's a completely different conversation, <laughs> probably yeah. for another time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well. um, I don't know if there's anything else we can we can say about this film. Um, it's oh, well, there it probably is. I could probably go on for another hour. Or so talking, we around probably around could. It. <laughs> I think
1: but before we stop, we should just talk about how great the soundtrack is because we've only mentioned it briefly, yes. but it is wonderful. It, it, is it is so good.
2: It is. You could quite. have, I think I've. I could quite have listened to that just driving along in the car or whatever else, and just as a most of it's quite relaxing music. Yeah. Um, but there are elements of it that certainly are disturbing
1: it becomes strangely more relaxing as the yeah. uh, as the action becomes a lot darker i think yes that it's i mean but is a great great composer anyway i love his music for secretary as well as all of yeah. his david lynch stuff i think he's a genius but mm. there's also some really well chosen needle drops in it and i love the way that like towards the middle point where it's getting into the stuff with Adam Kesher and the gangsters, he starts yeah. putting these kind of funky electric blues songs in, like yeah, some yeah. Boy Williamson and stuff. And it's like yeah. it, it's briefly like gaslighting you into thinking this is going to be one of those Elmore Leonard-ish crime stories yeah. that were popular in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to be turning into that, but then of course it doesn't. Yeah. So it's it's so well chosen. I love
2: yeah. it. I mean, the, the, music does, the music does exactly the same as the visuals do. And the, mm. the story appears through it. It keeps leading you down these different paths to make you think you're in one type of film when yeah. you're not in that type of film. You're possibly in a very different film. But then the music cues change to put you in a different thing. And I yeah. guess that's the same thing you saying about the mood that he projects within each scene. The music is a mm-hmm. massive part of that mood and bringing you into the the right frame of mind for that mood to happen, yeah.
1: I mean, he fa- you know, he famously meditates a lot and I do think right. it, it's a good way to to approach his films to not sort of think about where it's going, but just to be in the moment and try and absorb as much of each scene as you can.
2: Yeah, I think, and I think that was possibly, that's possibly been my problem with watching it this time is knowing that I'm watching it to... Discuss with someone. Mm. I am making notes. i thinking about what's going on a lot more than I probably would if I'd just sat down and just watched. Um, and I think the first time I saw it, I did just sit down and I did just watch. And I think I probably walked away going, don't know what I've just watched, but I think yeah, I enjoyed yeah. it. Whereas this yeah. time, I analysed whilst I was watching it. And I think you're probably right that that's never the way to watch a David Lynch film that you have to just be there and be there in the film. And then when you walk away, you, you've walked away from it and probably yeah. not think too much about what happened or why it happened, just it happened and it was an experience that you've had. Um, Absolutely, which, yeah, solidly I, I don't, agree. don't know if that makes it sound good or bad, actually, but it, it is it's, it's. I think it's what you have to do with it, yeah.
1: I think the, the sort of meme, the little joke that everyone has where they say, That was a film that existed. That's the (laughs) attitude you actually need to watch David Lynch films with. Unironically, you just have to accept that this is a film that exists.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's probably well worth a watch, but you do just have to watch and just let it gloss over you, I suppose, and just live in the moment as it's happening Yeah.
1: I don't know about you, but one of my pet hates is people who, like, as soon as you stand up in at the end of a film, just immediately turn to you and go, What do you think of that then? It's like, Well, <laughs> I, you know, I had <laughs> someone do that to me when I watched Annette recently. I just want to say, I've watched a Leos Kavax film. It's going to take a month before I can come to terms with what I've watched.
2: Yeah, I need to really process this for a while and yeah. think about it. It's as I said, I mean, I sat and I watched the credits. And yeah. I, I couldn't I couldn't get up. It wasn't just to get up. If someone had turned me... I, I watched it on my own, but if someone had turned me after it and gone, so what do you think? i had been like, I, I, I can't speak right now. Exactly. That is um, an
1: the only valid answer to this question is the one that I distinctly remember overhearing as I walked out of that LFF preview screening <laughs> all those years ago, where somebody said in a small, shell-shocked voice, so he also did that nice one about the old man on the lawnmower. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah!
2: (laughs) (laughs) But he's also in a lot of other things that you'd think twice about as well.
1: He's a man of variety. The Straight Mm. Story is now streaming on Disney+, Plus, by the way. So if you want to get your kids interested in David Lynch at a very young age, you can do that.
2: But that, I mean, Straight Story is a much more mainstream film than anything else he's done, I suppose.
1: When you, when you watch it back, you realise that it does have a lot of those moments like the sort of figure-eight camera work or like yeah. the, uh, for, yeah. the fireplace going out of focus. It's yeah. got a lot of very abstract, experiential stuff in it. It just yeah. it doesn't have any sort of dream logic or sudden jolts mm. of horror. So it, it scans as something people can enjoy. But in its yeah. style... It's still playing around with the form yeah, yeah. an awful lot.
2: I suppose so. Yes. Yes. Right. Well, thank you very much for this chat. It's been a, a really good chat. Um, it was How have I
1: persuaded you that it's worth watching again? Though that's you know the what? cliffhanger you left us on.
2: I, I think I might just go back and watch it, and as I say, not analyse it. Because I did this time, I was analyzing it, knowing I was going to talk about it. You know, you make notes as you're going along. You have to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I think I need to go back and just sit and just absorb myself in it and watch it again. And I suppose while I've got, you know, pay my subscription to BFI Player and it's there for free on BFI Player, I might just watch it again and see see what happens. I might even pay the money and see what the extra six minutes is about.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: What's that about? (laughs) That's fascinating. That's a, a real life david lynch mystery that's been presented to us there yeah Yeah. if
2: if anyone out there has paid for the remastered version and knows what the six minutes is about please get in touch and let me know what six minutes is because i'm I'm intrigued don't know if i'm intrigued enough to pay for it (laughs) (laughs) you never know (laughs) when the 20th anniversary blu-ray comes out you can send me and hopefully it'll have that version on it We'll
1: get these answers that we need, yeah, and find out who's got the blue lamp or whatever that ridiculous oh, list was. I might have to find
2: that list as well and then sit down and absorb. I don't know. It's
1: very funny. He should do it for every show or film that he does. It's great. But
2: just find a list of um, clues that he's put into them.
1: A list of home furnishings that have nothing to do with the mystery.
2: <laughs> that he can <laughs> Yeah. Let's like see that list for June. That'd be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Well, thank you very much again. It has been lovely to have a chat with you. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah. Oh,
0: it's been a very strange day. I'm getting stranger. Thank you once again for coming on the show, Graham. It was really nice to talk to you about Mulholland Drive. Next time on the show, I have another one of the Geek Show guys, and that is Rob Simpson. And Rob will be talking about Ring. Ring was a Japanese horror movie
2: based on a book which effectively changed the industry. Uh, it made the, Jap- the Hollywood system stop pushing out sequel after sequel of slashes and completely reinvented what a Hollywood horror movie was. All from this little humble Japanese movie about a killer videotape.
1: Hugely influential. It's influence can be still felt today. Very, very important.
0: And that's Rob's trail for Ring, which will be the next show. I hope you've enjoyed once again listening to my favourite film podcast. As I've said before, if you want to get in touch, get in touch. It'd be lovely to hear from people about things. That's it for this week. So for me, for now, bye-bye. Finally, thanks to Acast for hosting the website and to Max Smith for the theme tune composition. To get in touch with the podcast, remember that website is www.myfavoritefilm.com.